Hello, I'm James Cornby and welcome to Capital Talk, the private wealth podcast brought to you by Stevenson Harwood. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Capital Talk. And this time we need to talk about the EU blacklist. And to help me unpick this little bundle is Richard Hay. He's a partner at the Canadian law firm Steitman Elliott in London, and he is the head of their tax practice. As well as doing that, as if he had any more time, he is also counsel for the IFC Forum, which is the industry body looking after professionals working in the British overseas territories and Crown Dependencies. Did I get that right, Richard? Correct. Well done. A man of many parts, I think we'll all agree. You also happen to be an expert on the EU blacklist, which is something that we see a lot about in the professional press. If you could just tell us, what is the blacklist? Well, this is an effort by the EU to dominate global tax policy. Uh, They've had competition from the OECD in this area and they would like to assert some control. Uh, I think that their primary concern is that their tax system makes them uncompetitive. In countries in Europe, take a percentage of tax up to about 57%. That's France and Finland. Asia takes 20% of GDP. As you can imagine, that puts quite a bit of stress on the appetite for inbound investment. And the EU, there's a statistic out there that the EU is responsible for more than 50% of the world's social spending, which is probably not unrelated to their desire to bring in more tax. Correct. And of course, they have only 7% of the world's population and 25% of the economy. So when you're at least two or five, seven times that in your social welfare spending, that puts a lot of pressure on your system. So they need to find some money. And the way of doing that is to use a more muscular policy in regulation. And some people have argued that what uh, the EU is trying to do with the blacklist is effectively weaponize regulation and tax. Is, is that how you see it, Richard? I think that's a fair way of looking at it. They saw what happened to uh, the Soviet Union, where they developed an uncompetitive tax system. Uh, the first thing they do is take territory around them. They build high walls. In a modern economy, it's very difficult to ins- insulate yourself from global pressures. So the other approach to it is to have others adopt public finance models that flatter yours, and that is the EU's objective in this exercise. And other people have said that the EU blacklist is the EU's attempt to impose its own values on other countries, because we can understand how they might wish to impose values amongst themselves as member states, but extending those values to third countries. How effective do you think this attempt to regulate the tax affairs of other countries will be in the end? Well, so far, it's been pretty effective. They started by analyzing tax systems in 90 countries. Uh, More than 60 have participated in the program. They've backed their program with um, threats to impose uh, sanctions. Uh, They're not very effective at the moment or not very fulsome because direct taxation is constitutionally assigned to the member states. So there's a limit to what they can do centrally at the commission in this area. But I I think we can expect... As they refine the process, they'll get much more effective at it. And the number of countries on the blacklist seems to go up and down all of the time. I lose track of how many times some countries have been in and out. When are we going to have a final list or will there ever be a final list? Will it always change? Well, the EU describes this as a multi-year program. So what we're seeing is entry level on this. They will annually revisit their requirements and uh, put 
countries on or off the blacklist. Uh, and as part of that process, what they will do is to dictate tax, commercial, corporate, domestic laws for 60 other countries, which is a game changer in, in the world economy. And where do you think we'll end up? It, I mean, if we look specifically at the British overseas territories and Crown dependencies, there'll be a lot of listeners from those islands. Um, how's it going to play out, do you think, for those international finance centres? Well, the EU is going to put a lot of pressure on low tax rates. Um, when they introduced their blacklist initially, uh, as you probably recollect, in 2015, that was not a was an ill-fated venture, shall we say. The second time round, um, they approached it. What they wanted to do was adopt a minimum tax rate required, and if you didn't meet that minimum tax rate, then you would be blacklisted. Has the that EU, been dropped now? Well, yes, it has been. And the reason for that, James, is that uh, the EU vigorous, sorry, the UK vigorously resisted that. So with the UK gone, are we going to see a ban on zero rates of tax? Well, uh, I think this is also difficult from internally. I mean, one of the things you see going on in this exercise is a power grab by the commission, which is a centralizing agency at the expense of the member states. So member states are cognizant of the risks in allowing the EU commission to set minimum tax rates. I mean, zero is pretty straightforward, but could you have 0.1? Could you have half a percent? Could you have 5%? Or a minimum threshold, it might say that perhaps you can't have corporate tax at less than 10%. Exactly, exactly. And then the question is whether individual members of the EU are prepared to have the commission setting a floor. There's at least one country in the EU that has no corporate tax on uh, profit unless distributed. Estonia has that tax system. So by introducing a threshold for corporate tax, we may find that some member states won't even be able to comply with it themselves. Well, they, they certainly would object because they, they know where that goes. You know, um, you and what about 10%. exemptions? I mean, the clever way around minimum thresholds is, is that you have a high corporation tax rate with loads of juicy exemptions. I could mention Malta as an example. I, I don't suppose uh, we'll be able to get away with that, would we? I wouldn't think in the long term. I mean, they're alive to those ruses. So lots of lots of bad news on, on, on tax rates. You mentioned earlier that the commission is driving this. And I think a lot of people will be forgiven for not really understanding the politics of the EU. We've got the commission, uh, we've got the council, and we've got the parliament. The commission is the one driving the EU blacklist. Is that right? Yeah, they have the executive capacity. So they're the civil servants. Uh, so they're driving the car. Correct. Okay. And the only people that can stop the car will be the council. Uh, correct. Okay. Yeah. Um, will they stop the car or are they actually sitting back and enjoying the ride? Uh, well, many people think that disabling British financial centres uh, is valuable for places, for example, like Luxembourg and Ireland. I don't subscribe to that view. I think they can see where this process is going and they realise that if they la allow the EU to dominate global standards, they will then turn the ray gun internally. And of course, one of the curiosities about this project is having promised to lead by example. The first thing the EU did when they actually got launched was to exempt their own members. Yes, that was very interesting, wasn't it? Because that goes against the sort of collaborative nature that we've seen from OECD over the years, which is we'll, we'll build some rules and all of you are expected to abide by them. 
Okay, so let's look at the end game here, Richard. The EU wants to regulate non-EU countries and their tax affairs to reduce competition. That's your thesis. If the EU is successful, does that therefore mean that we end up with a blacklist with no one on it? And will that be satisfactory? I mean, what's the point of having a blacklist with no countries listed on it? Well, as you can imagine, there's debate in Brussels about what's the proper outcome on this or the most desirable outcome. Um, I think most people think that if there's nobody on the blacklist, it shows they've been completely successful in exporting their tax policy to the world. Is there anything positive that can come out of this EU blacklisting process? Or is it all doom and gloom if you're a small, low-tax country? Well, I mean, we've seen apocalyptic predictions of um, existential threats to British finance centers and others for years. The fact of the matter is they actually play an important role in the global economy. They act as aircraft carriers for British rule of law abroad. Business needs them. They trust them. They trust British courts, professionals, laws. So I think that although the threats appear significant and they will need to be nimble in order to address them. Richard, how, how does the EU blacklist affect globalization in your view? Well, Of course, the world is struggling to develop mechanisms by which countries can contract with each other, interact with each other. And I I regard this as uh, transformational in that process. I mean, for 20 years, OECD has called the shots on this area, the harmonization or at least some sort of collective agreement on how the global tax environment should be organized. They had tremendous success, in my view, with the BEPS exercise. I appreciate that in practical terms, the outcome isn't huge, but it was it set the stage for a much more collaborative, consensual arrangement. The EU's uh, approach is completely different. The EU's approach is confrontational. It's a me-first mentality. We're going to assert what we want. We don't care what anyone else wants. I mean, what do you do? Quite right. And what do you do? Yep. What you're suggesting is the the use of regulation in this way by powerful trading blocks could actually push countries apart rather than together and actually end up with a maybe a bipolar world or tripolar, if that's a word. Is, is, is that what you're saying? Absolutely. I mean, you, you run the risk that well, regulation's the new warfare, and this is how governments assert their interests. They don't do it through uh, military power. That's unfashionable these days. But to demand that other countries flatter your commercial model by changing your rules to adopt their um, vision for tax and um, public finances, social welfare. I mean, all, all those things are, are wrapped up in this process. Well, that, that, that would be alarming if it were to actually happen. So I guess we won't know. We'll have to see what happens. But we've seen signs of that already, of a divergence between the US and the EU on certain, not blacklists, but sanctions lists and so on. So what you're saying is that's something we need to look out for in the future. Well, I, I think that and the other uh, aspect that could fuel this is EU's pressure on OECD, which it dominates that results in capture of the OECD policymaking process for the benefit of uh, their largest okay. group of uh, sovereign members. Interesting. And I've got a final question for you, Richard. Um, totally unrelated. Pork chops or lamb chops? Which Lamb are chops. Favorite? Always lamb chops. And why is that? Um, lambs are cuddly. Lambs are cuddly. On on that hopeful note, uh, we end, and I hope to join you next time. Thank you for listening to Capital Talk. 
brought to you by Stevenson Harwood. I'm James Cornby and I look forward to seeing you next time. Thank you.